Hello, everybody. We are doing something slightly different for our classic this Saturday. I really wanted to share our previous episode on Mary Seacole and the Crimean War because it's a really frequent listener request. And it's from far enough back in the archive that it's also pretty short by the standards of our show today. But it also makes several references back to another past episode, Jon Snow's Ghost Map, which is also a frequent listener request and also not quite up to the length that our shows today tend to be. So today we're having a Saturday double feature. We will have Jon Snow first and Mary Seacole second. Happy Saturday! Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert, joined by Sarah Dowdy. How are you, Sarah? I'm great, Katie. How are you? You won't be as great once we start talking about what we're talking about, which was a listener request. Jamie from D.C. wanted to hear all about Jon Snow and the cholera outbreak in Victorian London. I don't know. I'm kind of a fan of slummy Victorian London, so I think I'm going to enjoy this one. Jon Snow was born in 1813 in Yorkshire, England, and he was actually the son of a coal yard laborer, but quickly gets into the medical field at 14 when he starts three consecutive apprenticeships and first encounters cholera not that long after while visiting coal miners. In 1831, he gets, you know, his first exposure to contagious disease. Yeah. He doesn't begin his formal medical education until 1836, but he gets his MD in 1844 from the University of London. And by 1849, he is a licensed specialist of the Royal College of Physicians of London, which was a really elite organization. Yeah, this guy gets big fast. Um, he kind of enters the realm of what today we'd probably call a celebrity doctor, especially <laughs> when he treats Queen Victoria. And that's because he learned about ether being used in America, but pioneered how it was uh, dispensed. Right. So he helps Queen Victoria through her childbirth on the birth of Prince Leopold and Princess Beatrice and makes the public more accepting of the process yeah. at all. If Victoria is into it, whether it's Christmas trees or big white weddings or ether, the kingdom <laughs> likes it too. Trendsetter Victoria. <laughs> But we don't think of him today for his work in anesthesia. We think about him for his pioneering work in germ theory. And to do that, we'll give a little background first about Victorian London, which was really disgustingly really dirty. Place. Yeah. The life expectancy for a gentleman in Victorian London was 45, but if you were a tradesman, it was your mid-20s. So I would be killed off by now. Mm. And so would you. <laughs> And London was really, really stinky, like known worldwide for being stinky. It was the biggest city in the world, but sewage was just piled up everywhere. Toilets drained into basement cesspits, so there would just be piles and piles of sewage in your basement, stinking to high heaven. And the cesspits were flushed into the river if they were cleaned. Which, of course, is where everyone got their water. Maybe you can see where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> so needless to say, London, overcrowded, dirty, stinky, a good place for diseases to spread. And at the time, it was thought of that diseases came from miasma, or bad air from decayed organic matter. So bad smells meant disease. And when the entire city stinks, people thought you were getting sick from the sewage. There's also a moral element to the whole miasma theory uh, that 
stinky people were, you know, unclean and more prone to disease, not just because they were poor and destitute and living in overcrowded hovels. They were morally unsound. So too bad for you, poor people, if you lived in Victorian London. Everyone thought your illness was your own darn fault. So Snow doesn't buy this, though. He thinks that diseases are caused by some agent, not by a smell. Right. So they started calling that germ theory. And so we've got these two philosophies that are kind of going head-to-head. And they they go head-to-head for for decades, surprisingly enough to, to us. You know, miasma sounds like such a bad idea, um, but people aren't quick to buy germ theory. So there have been a few outbreaks of cholera in London. The 1848-1849 cholera outbreak killed 50,000 people. And this is where Jon Snow wants to figure out how this is happening. Cholera is not a pretty disease. You die from basically diarrhea that's unstoppable and various digestive ills. You die from dehydration because your body doesn't have any fluid left. And you can die really quickly, like within a day. So Jon Snow wants to figure out this germ theory and see if he can prove it. But in that particular outbreak, there weren't any public death records, and he couldn't figure out who was giving water to which households. So this wasn't a good test case for him. And in the summer of 1854, another cholera outbreak happens. 700 people are dead in two weeks. And this is when he starts his experimentation and runs around testing water and interviewing people and trying to figure out where this is coming from so he can stop it. And he performed two classic experiments during this 1854 outbreak. Um, The first was the Broad Street Pump outbreak experiment, which is my favorite. He's like Sherlock Holmes of medicine in this thing. He is. He's fascinating. It's pretty amazing. So um, in the Soho district of London – where he's actually based, his medical offices are actually based, there is a sudden case of cholera, 70 fatalities within a 24-hour period, most of them within five square blocks. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of these fatalities are based around the Broad Street Pump, which is a free water pump for the poor. It draws the water from uh, a well underneath the Golden Square, which has some of London's poorest, most overcrowded people. So in the last week of August 1854, all the residents of Golden Square start dying, and it starts with an upset stomach, and then goes to vomiting and severe cramps in the gut, and then to diarrhea and thirst, and then, like we said, death from dehydration. And it's fast to kill. Some people are dying within 12 hours after it starts, and it's really fast to spread. So the medical authorities are pretty quick to identify this as cholera, and Snow moves in to start studying what's happening. And he takes a really multidiscipline approach. He looks at water samples and sees, you know, what he can find in the water. But he also starts looking at the maps of London Dead, or the weekly statistics about who's dying of cholera in London, looking for geographical patterns. And he draws a ghost map that showed a correlation between cholera cases in this neighborhood and the Broad Street Pump. Basically, if you lived within walking distance of the Broad Street Pump, if that was your nearest water source, you were very likely to come down with cholera. And it's really intense. You can find a bunch of them online of the ghost maps, but they're just black lines everywhere showing 
people dying. They're very disturbing, little stacks of black lines. And you'll see the pump location and the houses immediately adjacent to the pump just have these huge stacks of black lines coming from them. And Uh, this is part of the reason he's called the father of modern epidemiology. It starts right here. Um, So after about a week, he goes to the local board of guardians of St. James Parish with his findings, with this ghost map, and um, convinces them to shut down the Broad Street pump, to take the ha- literally take the handle off the pump. So people can't use it. And they're not totally into it, though, are they? No, they're still thinking about the whole miasma thing. So they're engaged in this pursuit to spread lime all over the streets because that'll kill the smells the and surely <laughs> that will kill it. But they decide, okay, Go you know, guy's convinced. So let's go ahead and take the pump handle off. And surprise, surprise, the outbreak ends. But what's so great about Snow's experiment here is he doesn't just look at the overwhelming evidence on the side of if you, you know, drink this water, you very well might get sick. He looks at kind of the statistical outliers. Yes. He's very thorough. I love this. Yeah. he. um, There's some school children who don't live near the pump who end up dying. He reasons that they pass by the pump on their way to school. And my favorite, there's a widow in West End, Hampstead, and her niece in Islington, and they got sick, but neither of them had been anywhere near Soho. So he did some investigation, did some interviewing, and discovered that the widow had once lived on Broad Street and liked the taste of the well water so much that she had a servant go to Soho every day and bring her back a bottle of it to drink. It's like when you go to Florida or South Georgia and you, like, bring your Atlanta (laughs) water. Bring your own water. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, and he actually finds the last bottle of water that the widow had gotten was from August 31st, which is the start of the epidemic. So bad, bad timing there. There's also an army officer living in St. John's Woods who dies after dining in Water Street where he had drunk in a glass of water from the Broad Street well. And he also, in his thoroughness, looks at the people who didn't get sick. So the people at the Poland Street workhouse are just around the corner from the Broad Street pump. So, I mean, if you're thinking about it, they should have been sick, but they weren't. And so he went and looked into that, and that's because the workhouse had its very own water source. They weren't using the Broad Street pump. And that's also a good case against the miasma theory. These people are in the workhouse. They're dirty. They're more likely to be morally suspect. Morally corrupt. Sorry, (laughs) y'all. But here they are, you know, safe from cholera. Also, the Broad Street Brewery, which, you know, right down the street from the pump, um, no deaths because the workers are given a daily beer allowance, so they don't need to drink water. <laughs> I feel like there's a lesson in there somewhere for my bosses. <laughs> he also has the help of Reverend Henry Whitehead, who's the vicar of St. Luke's Church. And Whitehead actually wasn't originally on his side. He thought the outbreak was caused by God's intervention. And he started a report to prove it, but it actually only ended up confirming John Snow's study. But he was man enough to come to, to, admit it. to Snow and admit, you know, my research is the same as yours. And he actually helped Snow uh, track down the source of the local outbreak, a sick child at number 40 Broad Street, right near the pump, um, had had his diapers washed and the water was dumped into a cesspool. It was only a few feet away from the well. And after the child died, no more diaper pail water had been dropped in that cesspit, so... People stopped getting sick. Yeah. 
So later in the year, our Sherlock Holmes, Jon Snow, conducts a grand experiment. And he compares the London neighborhoods who are receiving water from two different companies. And one company uses water that comes from the Upper Thames, and the other uses water that comes from the heart of London. And interestingly, Parliament had actually required the metropolitan water companies to improve the quality of their intake, but not all of them had complied. And of course, sewage is being dumped into the Thames. The sanitation commissioner named Edwin Chadwick believed in the miasma thing, and he thought that if you dumped sewage in the river, you were keeping bad air away from people. So he thought what he was doing was actually really good. But of course, he's dumping sewage into water that's then getting turned into drinking water. But this dual water company thing kind of presents the perfect opportunity for an experiment for snow, because the companies were rivals and it had at one point competed head-to-head. So some houses had mains from one company while their next-door neighbor had a main from the other company. So essentially you had this controlled experiment. Everything right. was the same in this neighborhood except for the water, where they got their water from. And it turned out for people who got the London-sourced water, they had a much higher chance of contracting cholera. And Snow is overjoyed because he thinks, wow, he's finally proved it. The ratio of people who died from one source of water versus the other was something ridiculous, like 75 to 5. I mean, if that's not proof, you know, what is? And he suggests intervention strategies to control epidemics, and he thinks that he's proven that contaminated water is what gets people. But it didn't seem to stick. No, people are still stuck on the miasma theory. And it's not, sadly, it's not really until the 1880s when germ theory is, you know, golden. People people go with that. When the causative organism of cholera, um, Vibrio cholerae, is actually finally understood. So when Jon Snow died in 1858, people still thought it was miasma and no one accepted all the things he'd worked out so hard. Chadwick was still suggesting ridiculous things. At one point, he was quoted as saying, all smell is, if it be intense, immediate acute disease. And in the 1890s, he suggested bringing down fresh air from places like the Eiffel Tower and distributing it to <laughs> Katie citizens. Katie and I were, were discussing how that would actually be done. Like, how, how do you catch the air and then distribute it like a ration? I can't ask Mr. Chadwick. <laughs> The Great Stink of 1858, which is my favorite name of anything that has ever happened ever, is what starts to change things because this summer was incredibly hot and sewage was everywhere in London. The flush toilets were overflowing the basement cesspits, which were going into the street drains. And I mean, it was so bad, no one wanted to be in the city. It was so horrible. The people in the House of Commons were draping their curtains and soaking them in chloride of lime just so they wouldn't be smelling the sewage. And so a committee was set up to figure out how to fix the stink. And this is where the modernization of the sewage system in London started to happen. So even though sanitation is much better in London today, it's still a problem in a lot of places in the world. And cholera is actually still causing a lot of deaths. Diarrhea is one of the leading causes of death for kids in the developing world. There's a treatment for it today, oral rehydration salts, which 
you know, basically keep you from dying of dehydration in 12 hours, 24 hours. And it's, um, per, it's estimated that it's prevented 40 million deaths since 1978. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And today we're going to be covering our third installment in our Black History series. And the woman we're going to talk about today, Mary C. Cole, is actually someone Katie blogged about recently. And we both liked her so much that we wanted to look into her life even more. I love her even more because she is a nurse, as is my mother, and I have a lot of respect for the profession. So today we'd like to introduce you to Mary Seacole. She was born Mary Ann Grant in Jamaica in 1805, and she was born free and of mixed race. She was the daughter of a Scottish army officer and a free black boarding housekeeper. And she says in her autobiography, I am a Creole and have good Scotch blood coursing in my veins. And she gets a travel bug pretty early on. She takes two trips to England when she's young and um, gets her start in what would become her life's calling eventually, which is nursing through her mother. Uh, She's really knowledgeable about herbal medicine. She's actually called a doctress. Yeah, I I like that term a lot. It's like when I call myself an editrix because I don't feel like just being an editor. (laughs) She did marry, but it's interesting that he doesn't figure too much into her autobiography or even really the story of her life when you're looking at it. She does mention that he was delicate and that she nursed him through illness and that when she died, she didn't leave her room for days. And her mother died soon after that. So these were two big personal blows in her life. Yeah. Well, and it comes with money problems, too, because as a widow, she's not bringing in as much income. And eventually her Kingston house burns down in 1843, leaving her in even worse financial straits. But she resolved to work hard, and she gained this reputation as being a very capable nurse. And it's funny, she says, One of the hardest struggles of my life in Kingston was to resist the pressing candidates for the late Mr. Seacole's shoes, which is just a little aside that I love. Like, well, I was very much in demand, but uh, however, I said no. Well, and we were talking about how it's interesting that she doesn't remarry because it would certainly make her financial problems a little easier to deal with, but she wouldn't have been able to do all these amazing things that she goes on to. When she seemed to have a very independent streak. She must have had something in mind. I think a husband would have been a bit of a hindrance. So in the 1850s, there weren't any formal nursing programs. Mary Seacole learned to care for patients during an 1850 cholera epidemic in Jamaica, which killed thousands and thousands of people, uh, by watching and experimenting and gathering evidence on what techniques and remedies seemed to work, you know, taking a rigorous scientific approach to what she was doing. Yeah, this reminded us of our episode we did a while ago on Jon Snow and the ghost map, which is also cholera and also this very scientific approach to medicine, which is so second nature to how we think of it now. But not in the days of, of my Not in the 19th bad century. Air. No, not at all. So she goes off traveling again when she's through with this epidemic, which she really loved to do. And she is, of course, alone, which, you know, horrors for a Victorian woman. And she ended up at her brother's hotel in Cruces, Panama, which was a place that many California gold seekers stopped by. And cholera has broken out there, too, in 1851. And there aren't many doctors around. Two important takeaways from her time in Panama, she saves a lot of people and she advances her medical knowledge. She even does an autopsy on a little boy who's died of cholera. She wants to know what what the insides look like of someone who's been ravaged by cholera. 
And she says she learned a lot from that, too. As she was one of the few who believed that cholera was contagious, and she also thought cleanliness was important, which, again, like our ghost map, yeah, not so much. <laughs> so this makes her a little bit different from your average nurse, who's usually under the direction of a doctor. She's got a broader practice. She's diagnosing. She's um, prescribing, you know, herbals or pharmaceutical medicines. And uh, she's even doing light surgery eventually and this postmortem. So she's of a different mold than your, than your average 19th century nurse. And she's extremely talented. But she didn't enjoy her acquaintance with Americans in Panama, and she returned to Jamaica just in time to fight a big outbreak of yellow fever. But when the Crimean War broke out, she was convinced that she'd found her real calling. She wanted to go to the front lines and take care of the men. So we're going to take you on a little detour to understand a bit more about the Crimean War. Well, the Crimean War ultimately breaks down to a lot of European powers against Russia. But specifically, it's a war fought on the Crimean Peninsula between the Russians and the British, French, and Ottoman Turkish, later with the support of Sardinia Piedmont. So we've got all of these European powers uniting together. And to understand why that happens, we have to go back even further, further away from Mary Seacole, sorry. But we've had the Napoleonic Wars at the beginning of the 19th century. And the great powers have gotten together and worked to rebalance the European states. And they want peace and monarchies, no revolutions, please, no republics. And so Russia... Just be cool. Yeah, just, just be, be cool, cool everyone. <laughs> Russia, Prussia, Austria, Britain, and France all want different things, but they managed to come together and work out the Treaty of Vienna after the Napoleonic Wars. And they establish a kind of shaky but still impressive peace, peace for the most part, for 30 years um, until the Vienna system <laughs> breaks down. So this initial problem is that the Ottoman Turkish Empire, which you know is this vast ancient empire, really old, yeah, it's weakening, and the other European countries are starting to butt in to support the various Christian populations. Yeah, and we have issues going on between France and Russia that we're not going to get into too much. But our main point here is that Tsar Nicholas the First is seeing an opportunity to cash in on this breakdown of right. the Ottoman Turkish Empire. And he wants to exercise protection over the Orthodox subjects of the Ottoman Empire. So this is the, the Christian populations the we were mentioning. And um, he thinks that he'll settle the sick man of Europe, as he calls the empire, the aging empire, um, and carve it up. And he thinks that Prussia, Austria, and Britain will be into this. They'll stand behind him because they might stand to benefit too, but Wrong. surprise, yeah. <laughs> Britain and Austria are not interested in Russia controlling this huge contentious area, this area that links Europe to Asia. So it's right. important. And the Turks resist the Tsar. They put up quite a fight, which I don't think Russia was entirely expecting. And they're supported by not only Britain and Austria, but also France. So the Turks put up a fight, and the Brits and French get involved in not just a diplomatic way. They're, they're still thinking that maybe we can all talk this out, but that's not going to happen. They get involved after the Russian Black Sea Fleet destroys a Turkish squadron. And the British and French fleets are entering the Black Sea to protect Turkish transports. And this is the important part we were talking about earlier. You don't mess with Britain or France's trading operations. No, they will fight back and they will fight a little bit dirty. 
So by September 1854, we have all-out war as the Allies land troops in the Russian Crimea, which is the north shore of the Black Sea. And they start a year-long siege on the Russian fortress of Sebastopol. And that's where our focus in Mary Siegel is going to be. So over the next year, we have some big battles, particularly at Alma River, Balaclava, and Anchorman. And there's a desperate need for medical help, not because there are a lot of casualties, because on that front, we're actually doing all right, but because of infection and poor hygiene. And that brings us back to Mary Seacole, who, again, really wants to go to the front. But she's met with an obstacle Despite the fact that nurses are desperately needed, she's turned down by every single war office she applied to, including the one that Florence Nightingale headed up. And it was because of her race. Apparently that happened with a lot of black female nurses who wanted to go fight in the war. They were turned down everywhere they went. But if you think that stopped her, it did not. Yeah, she makes her own way to Balaclava on her own dime and sets up a British hotel, which was kind of half boarding house, half sick bay. She went into partnership with Thomas Day, who was a sort of distant connection to her late husband, and stocked up on food and medicine and all sorts of supplies and left for Turkey as a sutler, which is um, somebody who provides supplies to troops on the front line. And she worked with a lot of men who didn't want to go to the hospitals, but eventually she got a pass allowing her to be the first woman to enter Sevastopol, and the soldiers started calling her the Black Nightingale. Later, she moved onto the battlefields themselves, and she was known for wearing really, really bright clothing, lots of yellows and reds. Red ribbons on her cap. It was apparently a a very welcome sight to the men who started calling her Mother Seacole. And she really thrived there. This is exactly where she wanted to be, right in the middle of the action, doing what she loved to do best. Well, in all her experience with hygiene and treating these tropical diseases prepared her for dealing with the infections and the horrible hygiene of the Crimean War. But the war ended suddenly, so we know it's been going on with Mary. Let's switch back to the rest of Europe. So by September 11th, 1855, our year-long siege of Sebastopol, the Russian fortress, is coming to an end, and the Russians are forced to evacuate it, and they blow up their forts and sink their ships, and the war sort of straggles on a bit in the Caucasus and the Baltic Sea, but Russia finally accepts preliminary peace terms in 1856, and later signed the Treaty of Paris. There are some important takeaways from the Crimean War. One we got was from the BBC, which said in military terms that this war was a midway point between Waterloo and World War I. Yeah, and that's because you've got the Napoleonic strategies, which uh, on a side note here, this war was terribly managed on all sides. That's why there's so much disease and so much need for nurses like Mary or Florence Nightingale. But when when you have these sort of antiquated military strategies, you also have modern weaponry, armored warships, rifles, at least for the British, um, intercontinental electric telegraphs and submarine mines and war photography and even um, even war journalism, which is something that you just – it goes without saying now. Yeah, this was the first real media war. There was a Times correspondent, William Howard Russell, who was sending – First-hand dispatches from the front line. That's a pretty big deal. We might talk about him in another podcast. 
But of course, uh, the Crimean War doesn't sort out Europe's problems. Russia does realize that it better get its act together if it's going to compete on the same level as the rest of Europe. And also, Austria loses Russia's support because they haven't behaved uh, neutral or <laughs> they haven't behaved with complete neutrality during this war, not at all. Um, so they've become dependent on Britain and France, which don't end up supporting them through the rest of the century. And consequently, we have Italy and Austria left primed for nation building and um, ready for unification. So this is the collapse of the Vienna settlement and of 30 years of relative peace. And we end up with this new six power system, but that of course is also terribly unstable and Europe re-enters war in 1914, 99 years after the Vienna settlement. Perhaps you've heard of that war. But another takeaway from the Crimean War is the deaths. We've got 25,000 for the British, 100,000 for the French, and up to a million for the Russians. And a lot of this was because of disease and neglect. Yeah, not outright battle casualties. No. So what people like Mary Seacole were doing was really important. And after the war, Mary herself came into a lot of financial difficulties. She'd lost money from her war efforts since she did a lot of this on her own. And since part of what she was doing was buying supplies and selling them to people, once the war suddenly ended, she was left with all those supplies and no one to sell them to. She's not totally unappreciated by the Brits, though. And um, some people, especially those who have seen the service that she provided during the war, want to help her get out of her financial straits. Um, the Brits try to help her raise money to get out of debt. It, it doesn't go as well as hoped. No, a lot of those fundraising efforts, you know, you throw the charity ball and then it turns out you spent so much money <laughs> trying to set up the Definitely ball. Definitely had that happen before. <laughs> There's not a lot of money left over to actually give to Mary Seacole. But the publication of her autobiography in 1857 really helped. And Sarah and I think this is the most fantastic title for an autobiography, The Wonderful Adventures of Mrs. Seacole in Many Lands. And part of the reason her book is so notable is because it wasn't a slave narrative. It was the story of a free woman of color who was doing interesting, courageous work in wartime, which, you know, was considered a man's sphere. And she was doing it on her own because she was also a widow who Something, chosen. Yeah, as we were talking about earlier, she's chosen to have this um, single life for herself. When she easily could have remarried. So that makes it different from some of the earlier you know, 19th century narratives we have from women. The fundraising eventually swings a little more in her favor, too. By the late 1860s, some of the royals in London have gotten involved in um, raising money and publicity to celebrate Mary Seacole. She died in 1881, and while she was honored during her lifetime, her name dropped out of public consciousness after her death. Now, when you're reading things about her, it's pretty much always a reference to the black Florence Nightingale. Which is a, it's kind of a shame. Well, and it wasn't even a competition between the two of them. They did completely different things. Like you were saying earlier, Florence Nightingale did a lot more with bureaucracy. Well, I was reading a piece by Helen J. Seaton, and yeah, she was raising the point that it doesn't need to be a competition between them. And people will try to I guess, defend Mary Seacole by saying, oh, she does so much more hands-on stuff than Florence Nightingale. But yeah, there there is no reason why there shouldn't be room for two 
at least two amazing nurses during the Crimean War. We always have to pit the women against each other. Let's <laughs> stop doing that. They're completely different. Although supposedly Florence Nightingale wasn't entirely too fond of Mary Seacole's work. But that's a story for another day. So after Mary's short-lived Victorian celebrity, which extends a little bit beyond her death, she really slips into obscurity and doesn't have a major effort to restore her place in history until 1954, which is the centenary of the Crimean War. Um, the Jamaican General Trained Nurses Association decided to name their Kingston headquarters Mary Seacole House. And British recognition didn't come until 1973, but... Which is a bit late. A bit late, yeah. But since then, we've had kind of a movement to um, revitalize Mary Seacole's image. Thank you so much for joining us on this Saturday. If you have heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar over the course of today's episode, since it is from the archive, that might be out of date now. You can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com and you can find us all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 